I'm going to ask you to remain standing for a moment. If you've got your Bibles, open them with me to Revelation 21. I'm going to ask Mr. Malin Hayes uh, to make his way up here. And uh, again, this is Next Generation Sunday, Family Worship Sunday. And you see we've got several of our teenagers helping lead worship here today. CJ, good to see you, man, on the drums over there. Uh, But uh, one of the ways that we value the next generation is giving them opportunities to serve because our teenagers and our children are just as much a part of our church as any other generation here. And uh, Mr. Malin Hayes here uh, is a young man in our student ministry who has recently uh, accepted a call to preach in his heart and life. So can we praise the Lord for him? And so I have asked Malin to come and read God's Word to us here today. So Malin, would you come and read God's Word? Revelations chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride aborn for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any uh, death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his his God, and he will be my son. Pray for us, man. Yeah, I forgot. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I come to you right now, Lord. I uh, pray that when this, when these things take place, that uh, more people will be involved in going uh, into heaven than there yeah. are right now. Yeah. That we are able to uh, share the gospel more and more every day. And uh, that uh, uh, the, uh, the service will go as planned and that uh, everybody will have a safe trip back home. Amen. Amen. Good job, buddy. Can we give Malin a big hand, man? Praise him. Praise the Lord for that. You may be seated. Thank you so much, uh, Malin. I was 14 years old when the Lord called me to preach. And if it was men like uh, Brother John Hamride and others who gave me an opportunity to serve. And so we are excited to get to do that as well. But uh, today we are, we're going to wrap up our series called The Story of God. Where we've been looking at how God was working throughout different eras in history. And the focus of our message today is going to be different and unique than any other message that we have done in this series because thus far every message that we've looked backwards at history of things that God has already done in history past. But today we're going to look forward to the future of things that God's Word has promised. And I uh, struggled at one point speaking to it as today we're going to look at history future, but that's actually not a good statement. You can't say history future, but then I talked myself out of it in preacher language because the reality is is that history states fact of something that has happened. And if God says something's going to happen in the future, it's just as much fact as, as if it has already happened. So that's bad grammar, but it's good theology. So, But the title of our message today is The Story of God in the Era of the End Times. Now, as we saw in our text this morning, the reality is the Bible does give clear and detailed descriptions 
about a season in the future when the world as we know it will end and God will usher in a new heaven and an internal existence unlike anything that we have ever known. Now, when this happens, the literal return of Jesus to this earth and the final judgment will be at the center of the end times. Now, when we start talking about the end times, uh, most people usually fall into one of three camps. Uh, First off, if it's your favorite topic to talk about, that's true for some people. Man, you read anything that has anything to do with end times. You You are thoroughly acquainted with all the maps and charts, and John Hagee is probably one of your favorite preachers. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it being one of your favorite subjects. For a lot of believers, it is just a forgotten subject. You believe it's true, but you just don't really think about it often. The the, the fact that Jesus' return is imminent is something that just really doesn't affect your daily life. And then for some, the return of Jesus is a very fearful subject for you. Because the prophecies of God's judgment and the thought of you being on the wrong side when he returns frightens you. And that happens for a lot of believers. I can remember being about a 16-year-old in high school... And we had just finished a Wednesday night series on the Lord's return. And we were talking about the rapture. We were talking about being prepared for the rapture. And then we, we talked about the reality of the possibility of people being left behind. This was right around the time that Kirk Cameron movies were out. And the Tim LaHaye series uh, was out and all that. And that's not to say that I agree with all of them theologically. But hey, that was, that was big in that era. This is late 90s, early 2000s. But that was also right around the time where WDJC was piloting contemporary Christian music on the radio through another station called Reality 101.1. You all remember Reality 101.1 here in the Birmingham area. Okay, well, right after this series, what they didn't tell us was that when they did the changeover, that just one day, suddenly, they were just going to drop Reality 101.1. And so I'm 16 years old, and I get in my truck, I'm on my way to my buddy's house, and I go to listen to my little Christian station, and I don't hear anything but static. Okay, well that's that's unique. You know, I turn on there, can't hear no Christian radio on the radio. I on my way on my way to my buddy's house, uh, whose family were big leaders in our church, and get there, and the garage doors open, the cars are in the parking lot, and I go to the front door, knock on the door, nobody's there, and I, I, they were expecting me, and so it was kind of one of those houses. I just let myself in through the garage, looked around the whole house, everybody's gone, man. Everybody's gone, all these Christian people, everybody's gone. I get back in the car again, Reality 101.1 is still playing static on the radio. In about three minutes, I had convinced myself that I had been left behind, okay? (laughs) I was so thankful to get to church the next Sunday and see that most everybody was still there. You know, hey, if if they left me, he left us all, you know. (laughs) But but the reality is, is that this is a subject that we do need to talk about. Let me give you two quick reasons why we need to talk about the end times and the return of the Lord. First, because the scriptures demand it. Did you know that there are 260 chapters in the New Testament and there are uh, just under 100 direct references to the return of Jesus in the New Testament. That doesn't include the context verses before and after, just direct references. If you look at a whole, you would read uh, about, you'd read a direct reference of the return of Christ or the end times once every two and a half chapters. If you get beyond the Gospels, it's once every 1.4 chapters you read about the return of Jesus. In fact, the return of Jesus bookends biblical history once Jesus ascends back to the Father. 
As soon as Jesus ascends to the Father in Acts chapter 1, what do the angels say to the disciples there? Uh, Why do you look at him, uh, gaze into the heavens, for he who left you will return in the same way that he has gone. So again, the first reference to Jesus after his ascension is his return. And then the last reference of the New Testament in Revelations 20 is, yes, I am coming quickly. So the New Testament, once Jesus steps off the scene, is bookended by the fact of the return of Jesus. And then so, friends, if we're going to be a church here at Indian Baptist Church that is guided by the Scriptures, we must have a real expectation of the return of Jesus. The second reason we should be talking about the return of Jesus is because people are talking about it today. You know, if the pandemic did anything for us, if 2020 did anything for us, is it caused us to wonder if the end was near. The headline of the Washington Post, just a few weeks into the pandemic on March 17th, the headline of the Washington Post dealt with questions concerning, was Jesus soon to return? If you go and look at Google search trends, and you can do this, and you go and look at Google search trends, during the first uh, few months of the pandemic, you see that people searching for the information about the second coming of Jesus was one of the highest things that people were searching for during that time. And the truth is that today, as plagues and pestilences continue in our world, unusual weather events, war and unrest, and even the mounting persecution of Christians in the world, these birth pains are, people are wondering, are these the birth pains that Jesus spoke about? Is the end near? So today, as we look at these things, we need to recognize it is timely for us as believers to look at the return of Christ, and always has been. For 2,000 years, it's been timely for the church to look to the return of Jesus. So with that being said, let me answer a few of our questions here today. Question number one, what are the major happenings during the era of the end times and God's story? Now, like we said earlier, the era of God's story, we're not looking backwards in time at events that have already happened, but in this era of God's story, we're looking to the future in events that God has promised will happen. Now, before we get into this, we also need to state that the New Testament gives us great detail about Jesus' second coming and the end times, but nowhere does it tell us that we will know exactly when that will be. In fact, it tells us the opposite. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus spoke how only God alone knows the times of the end things. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus said, not even he himself knows when the Lord will send him to return to this earth. So let me go ahead and say this today, church. If anyone ever writes a book or starts preaching or proclaiming that they know the day and time when Jesus will return, you should run away from that person, get out of that church, because they are false prophets. I'm pretty sure right now you could go to Amazon and you could find the the book that was 100 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in in, in Year 2000. It's probably pretty cheap right now, you know. The reality is of all the great information that the Bible tells us about the end times, it was never intended to be for uh, purposes of prediction. It was always meant to be for preparation. You hear that? The New Testament tells us these things not to predict the time, but rather for us to be prepared. So if you look at the screen today, I want to give you a timeline. And I want to give you a timeline with eight major moments or major happenings pertaining to the end times and the second coming of Christ. Now let me say this, 
scholars differ on the placement of these events, and that's okay. There are historical positions. There are positions that have only been around for a couple hundred years. There are people who have interpreted these things differently throughout the centuries, and that is okay. The reality is, though, is that most biblical scholars will agree that these are eight things that will take place no matter where you put them on the timeline. So let me jump into these. I'm going to give you just a little bit of information about each one today. The first event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the working and waiting church. The era of the working and the waiting church. The Bible makes it clear that one day Jesus will return to this earth and he will gather the bride. He would gather the Christians. He will gather Christians to himself. However, prior to that day coming is that right now the church is to live and exist in a season of working to make disciples and waiting for his return. And that's the season that we are in right now. So this is the first part. We are in that season right now. And this should tell us a few things here today as a church. It should remind us that on the timeline of the Lord's return that this is where we are and this is who we are to be is that if we believe that there is an end coming, that eternity is on the horizon, is it should dictate the way that we live today. And it should first dictate the priorities of what we do in this life. And the number one priority that God has given the church is to go be people who are making disciples, who are telling other people about Jesus, who are trying to win people into the kingdom of God before his return. Jesus, in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus set a timer on how long we are to be working in making disciples. He said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. Listen, what what does it say there at the end? Even to the end of the age. Jesus says the church is to be making disciples until the end of the age, until I return. But we're not only supposed to be working, we're also supposed to be waiting. We're supposed to be looking with great anticipation of the Lord's return. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, listen to what Peter says about the level of anticipation that we are to look for the return of the Lord. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a moment. We talk about fixing our hope on something, something that you long for, that you anticipate for. Right around this Christmas season, uh, we get a lot of that, especially with these kiddos that are in here today. Uh, my son asked me just recently, Jackson, he said, Daddy, so we're, we're going to have church on Christmas Day, right? And I was like, yeah, buddy, we are. We're going to do one service at 1030, which, by the way, just let you know that one service at 1030. He said, that's great. And he said, is it going to be a normal service? I said, well, yeah, buddy, it's going to be a normal service. It's Christmas morning. He said, okay. And he said, hey, Daddy, how long do you think you're going to preach on that Sunday? <laughs> and I knew where he was getting. It's Christmas morning. He's got anticipation for things. He's got anticipation for things that are under the tree. And, and I want you to know something this morning. Church, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that God has given us in this world. There's nothing wrong with, with looking forward to marriage and children and grandchildren and these things. But the reality is, is the Bible says that our anticipation in life of His return, of seeing Him face to face, should always trump everything else in this world. 
And I'll say this to you here, church. I think one of the main reasons why we struggle sometimes being a people who look with eager expectation to his return is because we just love this world a little too much. We don't talk about the Lord's coming. We don't talk about his return because we love where we are. But the reality is, is that God would have us to be a people who are working for the kingdom and who are waiting for his return. But then one day, that first event will give way to the second event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus, and it is the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture of the church is a moment when, according to Scripture, Jesus suddenly and supernaturally snatches up his children who are alive on the earth to be with him in heaven prior to his bodily return and the end times. This is not a moment of mass death. This is a moment of mass departure, supernatural departure. One of the best passages of Scripture to remind believers uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 15 through 18, at funerals, we remind believers of what will happen to those who have passed on, who have already left this world in death. But it also speaks about what will happen to those who are alive and remain. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the, there it is, coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up or snatched up or raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." Now, let me explain this a little bit. When somebody passes away in this life who is a Christian, when they die, immediately their presence, their mind, their consciousness, you are immediately in the presence of Jesus. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But at the same time, when the Lord returns, one day as you come back with the Lord in his return, the Bible says that God will supernaturally take what is left of your earthly body here, whatever little that may be, And that he does a supernatural work and he will reunite you with that body that is now a perfect and glorified body. People say, well, why does God even care to do that if I'm already presently in consciousness with him? And the reality is God's about to make all things new. And he's not even going to leave that body behind as a marker of any victory for sin and Satan. And so he's going to bring you back. But the Bible also says that those who are alive in that moment will be suddenly caught up together in the clouds to be with the Lord, and they will see his face. Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 41, Jesus spoke about the suddenness of the rapture of his children at his return, saying, Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now again, scholars can disagree on when this will happen in the timeline of his return. But the reality is, is that it will happen. There will be a moment when the children of God will be suddenly taken to be with him in his presence, either in death or at his return. But can you imagine if that was to happen today? You know, God has given us our imaginations. They're gifts from him. Now, again, as long as your imagination doesn't get outside of Scripture, then you're okay. But if we keep our imagination in the the, the railway of Scripture as God has determined it, then it can be a great encouragement to us today. Can you imagine that if you're just going through your regular day, 
Maybe you're at work or maybe you're at home cooking dinner or maybe you're asleep in your bed. All things are normal. And then suddenly you hear a sound that you've never heard before, but the Holy Spirit within you immediately recognizes it. And it's the sound of the trumpet of God. And you go from one moment in regular life to the next moment. You are eternally in the presence of your King. This is what Horatio Spafford spoke about when he sang and wrote the hymn, And Lord, haste the day when by faith shall be my sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is the rapture of the church. The third event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the judgment of the church. Now the Bible makes it clear that once his children are in the present, in his presence, that they will immediately stand before Jesus to be judged. In my opinion, this judgment of the Christians takes place while the great tribulation is going on on earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul speaks about the judgment that they will face before Jesus, their Savior and their King. It says, For we must all appear. Before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is the Christian judgment. And so that each will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this judgment that believers will endure is not a judgment based on our sin. For those of us who are followers of Christ, that has already been taken care of. We do not face judgment for our sin. Jesus has taken that for us. John chapter 5, verse 24 speaks about this. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So this is not a judgment for our sin, but this is a judgment that determines our honor, determines our rewards, and is even a moment of humility in the presence of Jesus for how we spent our lives in him. The reality is, is that there'll be a day When we stand before Jesus who gave all for us, and we will give an account of what we have given for Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15 speaks about this. It says, each man's work will become evident for the day, or the day of the Lord is what he's talking about, will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but yet as through a fire. And so this is what this picture is showing us, that one day all of our lives spent as Christians, all of our time, all of our effort, all of our money, everything that we've done while experiencing the grace of Jesus, that the fire of God will come and burn it all away. And the wood, hay, and stubble, all the things that we did in life that didn't matter, every hour and every minute that we didn't spend in His presence, serving Him, worshiping Him, is it, will, it will all be burned away. And the only things that will be left are the gold, silver, and the precious jewels, the things that were done in Him and for His glory. And the reality is, is that on that day, some of us as believers will be honored and some will be humbled. We'll go to heaven, but the Bible says, as though escaping through a flame. C.T. Studd said once, One life to live will soon be past. Only what's done for Jesus will last. You know, the Bible has a different way, and God has a different way of valuing the works of our life than the world does. Several years ago, right after we left Enon as the student minister and moved to Memphis, uh, 
my family and I, we went to Graceland. We wanted, I, I grew up as kind of a big Elvis fan. My mom and my stepdad went with us, and my stepdad is a diehard Elvis fan. I mean, when we went through the whole thing, got to the very end where he was buried, my stepdad cried. Okay, I mean, like it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty legit, all right? But as we're going through and seeing all the things, we got to the racquetball court. And in the racquetball court there at Graceland at that day is where they used that giant vaulted ceilings from floor to ceiling, all four walls, was where all of Elvis's uh, silver, gold, and platinum records were hung. And listen, there's just floor to ceiling, and it's pretty amazing to see. I mean, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking it's pretty great because my stepdad, he's tore up again. He's probably crying over in the corner, you know. and, And then I look at Kimberly. And I say, babe, isn't that just something? Look at that, isn't that something? And she Jesus juked me. You ever been Jesus juked before? This when somebody goes super spiritual on you out of nowhere, you know, and I was like, isn't that something special? She said, mm-hmm, and not one of it will matter in the kingdom of God. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I leaned, I said, well, that's exactly what I was thinking, you know. <laughs> Amen, that's, that's right. But here's the truth. The world standard of judging a good man, a good life, is not God's standard. When Kimberly and I were serving in Memphis, we got to take uh, two sisters, Ellen and Mary, uh, on a mission trip to Haiti. And Haiti is the poorest country in our hemisphere. It is often uh, uh, fraught with uh, voodoo and a lot of unrest. It's a very dangerous place. And we went to this place, and this this young, beautiful young college girl, her, her name was Ellen, and of the sisters. And God just did something in Ellen's heart. And called her to that place. She got back and not long after that started receiving training and raising support. And she moved to Haiti outside of Port-au-Prince. And she started an orphanage. This is a young girl in her early 20s. And she was rallying support. And these children, so many of these young girls uh, were being abandoned by their family. And would definitely make it into prostitution and other things if they were not taken care of. And so Ellen started adopting these girls as her daughters. Before she reached the age of 30, she had an incredible orphanage set up where multiple girls were her daughters. She had help and friends there. And you think about all of the things that this young girl could have done in her 20s, her whole life's before her, and she has traded it now to serve in one of the most dangerous places in our hemisphere. And we've seen her write blogs and stories about how, yes, there are times when she longs for safety. There are times when she wishes that she could go to bed at night and not worry about the safety of the girls and the people around her. She mentioned that there are times where she does long to eat cereal again with milk and not with water. And there are times where she longs for the comforts and security of home. But all of those moments pale in comparison when she looks to the day that she stands before Jesus. And why is that? Because in the world standard, it's a 20-year-old girl who honestly is wasting her life in a foreign place that's too dangerous for a girl like her. Why would you not come home? But in the eyes of the kingdom of God, she is a mighty warrior. Church family, you don't have to go to Haiti. And you don't have to give your life to the mission field. But the reality is, is that one day we will lay our lives before Jesus and the work, the fire of God will come and consume our lives. And on that day, it will not matter how much money you had. It will not matter how big of a house you lived in. It will not matter what you drive. It will not matter that your kids were the greatest athletes. It will not matter the things that the world puts value on. But what will matter is, did your life point other people to Jesus? Did you glorify King Jesus? The fourth event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the Great Tribulation. 
This is a time frame that is described as a period of great hardship and suffering prior to the return of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus referred to the great tribulation as a time of hardship unlike the world has ever known or will know. Matthew 24, 21 says this, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Revelation chapter 16 speaks of death, terror, famine, disease, war, natural disaster, and the outpouring of the wrath of God on the earth during the great tribulation. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 should sober us at the thought of standing before the wrath of God that says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now some people again differ as to the question of whether or not Christians will endure the great tribulation. And again, this is a, this, this is, it's okay to be on either side of this, but I tend to lean towards the rapture taking place before the great tribulation simply because the great tribulation deter- speaks of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, the Bible says that God has not destined us for wrath but for the attaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is not to say that Christians will not endure suffering. The reality is, is that Christians have endured suffering for following Jesus, are enduring suffering for following Jesus, and will continue to endure suffering from following Jesus. But I tend, and again this is my theological position, uh, I tend to lean towards the fact that there's a difference between the suffering of the saints prior to the return of the Lord and the Great Tribulation. But regardless of where you place the Great Tribulation on the timeline, the reality is, is that God's wrath is sure and one day it is coming. The fifth event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the actual return of Jesus, the actual return of Christ. This refers to the physical and visible return of Jesus Christ in his glorified state to set up his kingdom on this earth. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 speaks of the moment when Christ returns to the earth and all the earth will know it. It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. When Jesus physically returns, bringing all the saints with him, all remaining peoples on the earth who are not followers of Jesus, and all nations and rulers that are against him, he will destroy, and they will be cast into hell, and those who have put their faith in him during the great tribulation will remain on the earth to welcome in the new rule and reign of Jesus. So what should this mean for us here today? The actual return of Christ is not the moment really that believers we look forward to the most because that's not the moment that our faith will be visualized. For the vast majority of us, our faith will be visualized either in death or at the rapture. That's when I will see him. That's when I will see him face to face. But at his physical return is when everybody will see him and all the nations and all unbelievers. So it is on that day, our faith is not visualized, but it's validated. There will be a day when everybody who has said no to Christ, there will be a day who everybody who has persecuted you for Jesus, there will be a day when all of those who have laughed at the faith of Christians will see him as he is and our faith will be validated. Then the sixth event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the millennial reign of Christ. 
The millennial reign of Jesus refers to what Revelation 20 shows as a period of 1,000 years just after the bodily return of Jesus where he will reign on the earth with the children of God before the final judgment. During this time, Satan will be bound and unable to deceive the nations or anyone. See, church family, when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated sin to usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is coming, but he also said the kingdom of God is here. And so when he died from the sin, when he rose from the grave, he, the kingdom of God had come. And in that moment, he could have taken up his throne on the earth at that point. But God in his sovereignty, for reasons only known to God, most likely first for his glory and for the love of humanity, decided to bring Jesus back home for a season in heaven. But when Jesus comes the second time, he is coming not to start something. He's coming to finish something. See, when Jesus rose out of the grave 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God had come. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So when he comes back the second time, he's not coming to establish his throne. He's coming to sit down on it. The seventh event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is then the final judgment. The final judgment, or what is known as the great white throne judgment, is the last and ultimate proclamation by Jesus of the eternal destinies of all people, which will take place after the millennial reign and after the millennial reign and the rebellion that occurs at the end of it. It is during this time that Satan is released and he deceives the nations one last time as they gather against Christ. And Jesus immediately and decisively executes judgment on all nations, peoples, forces of darkness, and Satan himself. This is the day when all darkness and evil is done away with. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, John saw this day in his vision of heaven, saying, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, but there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written within the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Church, this final judgment is real, and one day it will take place. What should that mean for all of us today? First, it should remind us that no one will escape the judgment of God. All will stand before God, great and small. It also reminds us that God's truth will win the day. It means that when God opens his books, when God judges the great and the small, when God judges the nations, he does not judge according to the world's standards. He judges according to his standards. That's important to know because in our day, as the world continues to celebrate the things that God hates, there will be a day when they give an account of it. Just this last week, United States Senate, the United States Senate they passed the Respect for Marriage Act 
that essentially codifies same-sex marriage and the uh, equal treatment to peoples inside of same-sex marriage. And many are fearful that it could bring about some level of persecution to the church in the days ahead, to those who will not affirm things that are outside of God's design. And make this clear, God makes it very clear that we are to love people right where they are in every situation. But at the same time, we cannot celebrate the things that God hates. And the truth is, is that one day, everyone will stand before God. Every person, every individual, and every lawmaker, every person in authority, and will give an account before God of what they have celebrated. And on that day, it will not matter how much culture cheered your name. It will matter whether or not more you have led and honored in the way that God has set forth. And also, this should cause us to ask the question, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? And if anyone's name is not written in the book of life, the Bible says that they are cast forever into the lake of fire. The eighth and final event in the era of the end times and the return of Jesus is the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth is a description given to the entirely renewed creation in which believers will dwell forever with God after the final judgment. Malin read part of that text to us this morning, Revelations 21, 2 through 4. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. I I love how he he mentions there that the first things have passed away. As we've seen in this whole series in the story of God, the very first moment in the story of God, you see humanity is in tranquility and peace There's no brokenness, there's no sin, there's no separation with man and God. But then sin entered the world and the world was broken. The story of God ends with a moment, uh, begins with a moment of great defeat. But all throughout the story of God, you see God is working his redemptive plan. God gives his law to let us know that we're sinners. He gives a sacrificial system to let us know that there must be blood to atone for sin. He sends prophets to bring about ultimately the promise of a Messiah. Then ultimately he brings about his Savior. He brings about Jesus who atones for sin. And then once sin is atoned for, then he bursts the church that is now intended to be those who are working and telling other people about him until one day when he comes and makes all things new. The Bible shows us that the story of God began with a great defeat, but it will end with a great victory. There is coming a day when there will be no more cancer, church. Hey, there's coming a day when there'll be no more depression or anxiety. There is coming a day where there is no more poverty or hungry food, hungry bellies. There's coming a day when there's no more broken homes or sadness or abuse or injustice or racism. And church, for those of us who are Christians, there is coming a day when we won't have struggle pray, have any struggles praying because we'll stand before our King. 
There's coming a day when even the best knowledge that I can have of God's Word, I still can't discern all of His secrets and all of His sovereignty, but I will stand before Him. There is coming a day when even through my best efforts, I still struggle with sin and in my flesh, but one day I will cast that off and I will be perfect before my Savior and worship Him like my heart has always longed. Church, we can go on and on, but the reality is for those of us who are Christians, this is our greatest hope because there's something better on the horizon. Several years ago, my great-grandmother was the only Christian in my family on either side, my mama's story. And I remember sitting at her bedside as she had went days without speaking as she was nearing the end. And I was praying over my great-grandmother, my mama's story. I was praying for her and praying that the Lord would just call her home easily and Started thanking the Lord for her influence and her love for Jesus. And as I prayed for her, I just felt prompted in my heart to just to celebrate Jesus. At that moment of death, just to celebrate the promise of the Lord. So I started singing that hymn uh, over her and to the Lord. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. And as I started to sing it and I was just kind of walking in the presence of the Lord, I could tell that the light in the room changed. And I opened my eyes and my great-grandmother, who had not spoken in days, her feeble hand had come out from underneath the covers and was stretched towards heaven. And her mouth was mouthing the words of what a day that will be. And why is that? Because the promise of what is on the horizon for us as believers gives power to us today. Church, you may be broken, but God's got a day of healing. You may be worried, but God's got a day of peace. You may be empty, but God's got a day to bring about you filled. Listen to me this morning. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning, church. This is the greatest hope for believers. I'm going to ask Brother Ron to come, and as he prepares to come, I I just want to give you a few quick lessons to take home with you today from this truth. The reality of the end times and the coming of Jesus. It should cause us to put our hope, not in this temporal life, but in the one to come. At its best, at its best, this world does not satisfy. If you are living for the hope of this world, you will be sorely disappointed. You know, I was reminded of that even over this Thanksgiving break, and I think it's important for us to remember as we go into Christmas, uh, I was so looking forward to Thanksgiving, probably more than I ever have, because it's something, it was going to be unique. We were in Alabama now, so we're going to be close to family. We bought a house, so we're going to get to host our own Thanksgiving. My brother was going to be able to come in town with all their kids, and so it was, listen, it was just, we're looking forward to it, and it was great. Y'all, my wife can cook. Listen, it got, it, I threw down, all right? And it was wonderful and so much to thank the Lord for. And I sat down one evening uh, during that Thanksgiving time and was just kind of thanking the Lord for everything. But there was something in my soul. I said, Lord, why am I just not so over the top excited? I think I just built it up in my heart that it was going to be something so much more. And the reality was the Holy Spirit spoke in my heart and said, Zach, it is so good that you enjoyed those things. And those are a gift from me. But even in the best moments, it doesn't compare to me. Listen this morning, the best Christmas mornings 
The best birthdays, the best holidays, the best accolades, the best graduations, the greatest moments in your life will pale in comparison to moments in the presence with your King. So let your hope be not in this world, but in the one to come. Secondly, the reality of Jesus' return should remind us to make sure we've given our hearts to Jesus. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. You know, that's, that's concrete. God uses an imagery there of writing something down. You know, we, we sign things. You buy a house, you sign things. And it's something that basically just says it's more than verbal agreement. It's more than a handshake. Now, I can take you back to the place where you signed this, Mr. Reno, and you agreed to this. And the reality is, is that coming to know Jesus is not a hope-so thing. It's a definitive thing. It's a moment where Jesus in his blood writes you down in his book. And he says, Zach gave his life to me on this day. I want to ask you the question here this morning. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know him? Have you come to know him today? And if you're not sure, you know what the last invitation of the Bible is? Revelation 22, 17 says, come. And let he who hears say, come. Let he who is thirsty come. And let he who ever wishes take of the water of life without cost. Jesus says, come. I'll give these others to you very quickly. The reality of Jesus' returning should cause us to walk in greater holiness. I want to be holy when he comes. It should cause me to hunger for him more than anything else in the world. But lastly, the reality of Jesus coming should cause me to hurry to bring the message of Jesus to those who don't know him. And when Jesus comes, he steps out on those clouds. He takes up his throne. The Bible says that his angels will come. One of my prayer cards for our church, the Bible says his angels will come. And they will sit on the banks of the ocean like a fisherman gathering the fish, the good fish in one bucket and the bad fish in another bucket. One day the angels of God will come and they will sift through all humanity. Who are his children? Who are not? Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? And that reality for us today, that should cause us to run out of this room. Over Christmas to sit down with that family member that you know is far from God, to go to that friend that you are not sure if they know Jesus, to walk across the street to your neighbor and invite them to a winter wonderland thing where they can hear the gospel. It should press us to go to those who do not know him today. Because again, when he comes, that time is over. We must work the works of him who sent us as long as it is day, for night is coming when no man can work. So this is your invitation this morning. This is how I want us to close. And we're about to celebrate the first coming of Jesus. I want us this morning to come before God and let him move our hearts in light of his second coming. So there's two places you can be here today. Either you're here this morning and you don't know him. Your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life or you don't know today. Come to know him. The Bible says just whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe this morning you say, I need to give my life to Jesus. Heaven or hell weighs in the balance. Come this morning. Or maybe you're here today and you say, I know Jesus. But I'm not longing for him. I'm not hoping for him. I am way, way too much enamored with the things of this world. And I'm not longing for Jesus. Maybe this morning you say, oh Lord, 
Help me to fix my hope completely on you. Help me to long for you again. Help me to say, as John said, come, Lord Jesus. Let me live that way. Whatever God's speaking in your heart to do, I encourage you to move this morning in light of his leading. Brother Ken's going to come, and I'm going to ask our pastors to come forward. If you need to join this church, if you need to talk to somebody about giving your life to Christ, if you just need somebody to pray for you, you feel free to come in these next few moments. You make an altar out of your seat right there where you are. Go meet with God today. Don't leave here this morning without saying, Lord, here I am. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, would you speak to your people today? God, I pray that you would help them to do business with you, Lord. And I ask it in Jesus' name.